Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I usually mention this at the end of the show, but if you could rate and follow the show, it really helps me get nationally recognized guests on here, like the doctor that we're interviewing today. So if you could take the time out to do that, it really does make a big difference. So I recently read the book, Estrogeneration, how estrogenics are making us fat, sick, and infertile. And I thought, hmm, the author of this book, Dr. Anthony Jay, would be a great guest to have on the podcast. So I reached out to him and he agreed. And I'm speaking with him today and I'm super excited about it because he's a wealth of knowledge and there are going to be so many takeaways on today's show. I think you're really going to enjoy it. A little bit about Dr. Anthony Jay is he double majored in biology and theology and earned his degree from Ave Maria University in Naples, Florida, where he researched HIV inhibitors. After college, he studied Alzheimer's disease for the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. From there, Dr. Jay earned his PhD in biochemistry from Boston University School of Medicine, researching fats, hormones, and cholesterol. Dr. Jay worked for three years as a scientific researcher at Mayo Clinic researching stem cells, epigenetics, and infrared light. Currently, he is a DNA health consultant and consults for pro athletes, pro bodybuilders, U.S. special ops, and people like you and me looking to optimize our health. And as I mentioned, he's the author of Estrogeneration, How Estrogenics Are Making Us Fat, Sick, and Infertile. So thank you, Dr. J, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I would like to start with just the title of your book, Estrogeneration, How Estrogenics Are Making Us Fat, Sick, and Infertile. What does the title of that book mean? Well, it's two things. Estrogeneration kind of hints at the problem we have in our culture where people are over-estrogenized. There's too much estrogen in our culture right now, right? It's a generation of people being exposed to estrogen. And it's not necessarily natural estrogen. It's artificial estrogen. That's my main focus. It's chemicals in our environment that are disrupting our hormones, testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone. And the other aspect of the title of the book is these changes, these estrogenic changes, these changes from these fake chemicals get passed on to future generations. And so it's a generational effect and impact. And that's really problematic. And I talk about that in my book, but I kind of work up to it, right? Because there's problems that you get with the hormones being disrupted with your health just day to day. But as soon as you start talking about passing those health problems on to future generations and amplifying those, and you see that in animal studies, that's a bigger problem, but most people don't see it as a bigger problem because it doesn't affect them. Right. So let's talk about some of those products that can disrupt or mimic estrogen. In my book, I have a top 10 list, but you know, plastics are a big one. A lot of the chemicals in plastics act like estrogen in our bodies. And it's not just BPA. Everybody thinks about just BPA. And back before I wrote my book, you know, even BPA was kind of accepted. It was kind of debated. Now it's become very clear BPA is very problematic for your hormones, but it's not just BPA. BPA free is definitely not enough. There's a lot of chemicals that they use in plastic in the production of plastic that are just as bad as BPA. Some of them are worse. And an example of that is phthalates. And there's a lot of phthalates. It's not just one thing. People think of phthalates like that's a chemical. Well, it's a whole class of chemicals. And again, even in BPA-free plastic, they're using that. So you have to be very careful with liquids in plastic because liquids allow the transfer of these chemicals and these chemicals disrupt hormones. So the plastics in general, you have to be careful. Fragrances, a lot of fragrances have artificial estrogen chemicals. And so that's another big category. There's various foods that have them. There's like sunscreen is another really problematic personal care product. Yeah. And we just went through another recall. Yeah. Another recall, right? Johnson & Johnson had one two years ago. And then who was it just a couple of weeks ago? I can't. It was another big brand. I remember that had the, had the recall again because they tested for these chemicals. 
I think people are surprised by that. Well, and those are just impurities and things. And those impurities were really sketchy and really problematic for cancer and whatnot. But the chemical oxybenzone, if people pull out their sunscreen and check their sunscreen for oxybenzone, I know it's a weird sounding word, but that chemical is illegal in a lot of countries. It's so bad for people and it disrupts your hormones. It causes infertility in wildlife. And that's why they made it illegal because it was like killing coral reefs in the ocean and things. And it's still legal in our country and people are rubbing it on their skin. They did a study after I published my book, they did a study with oxybenzone sunscreen. And by the way, like 90% of sunscreen has this. If you just go to the store like Walmart and you look at the sunscreens, most of them are oxybenzone. It's hard to find one that doesn't have oxybenzone. Anyway, they did this study where they put sunscreen on people one application of sunscreen, just one application, seven days later, their blood levels of oxybenzone were still above the government safety limits. And people are putting it on their kids. They're putting it on every day. It's just insane. And the government safety limits are very high. Like, I don't think people should be exposed to any of this stuff. It's, it disrupts your hormones. And so it's not causing cancer at low levels, but it's disrupting your hormones and causing low energy and low sex drive and, and fat, like weight gains and depression in some cases. Like if children have higher levels of these chemicals in their urine, children have higher levels of depression, majorly, like extremely high. And you don't expect to see children with depression. I mean, that's not a thing that should be happening. So these chemicals are problematic, even at at low dose, even when they're not causing cancer. So that's kind of what my book is all about. And that's, you know, it's an important topic because people are ambushed by this because it's not causing migraines. It's not causing toxicity, but it's slowly eroding a lot of people's health. Yeah. And you mentioned it's banned in other countries and then in Hawaii, right? You can't purchase that sunscreen in Hawaii because it killed so many of the coral reefs. Correct. That's just wild. And back to the plastic, I have a son and the water bottles that we're sending to, to sports games and school every single day. And you know, the big push is the BPA-free. You see all these bottles on the shelf that are still plastic, but they're like BPA-free, BPA-free. And I'm like, I still avoid them. I'm like, there's no way. I just, I just want to stay away from plastic because what happens in 10 years when we find out whatever they made this thing out of is leaching these chemicals into the water that we're drinking? Exactly. Do you purchase BPA-free products or do you think that those are still unsafe or going to be found to be unsafe? Correct. I don't purchase them at all unless I absolutely have to. Sometimes when you're traveling, you know, you're going to have to get a bottle of water once in a while or something. But in general, even there, like to the airport, I'll bring my stainless steel water bottle and just refill it after I get through security and things like that. So I make a real effort not to be using plastics I minimize them, right? I don't completely eliminate them. You're going to have them in your life here and there, but you do the best you can. And I definitely am skeptical of these chemicals. In fact, the research is pretty clear. You know, the phthalates, even the plastic number one, if you look on the recycling symbol, that little arrows, and there's a number one there, that number one stands for polyethylene terephthalate. It's full of phthalates. And, you know, oils in particular are bad because oils transfer estrogens a lot more than water. So anything oily, you're going to get an extremely high level of estrogen transfer. So olive oil, things like that, get it in glass, you know, heating stuff up. You get a lot more transfer when you heat stuff. Don't take a plastic mug or even a paper cup, quote unquote paper. Those paper cups aren't paper. They're lined with plastic. Yeah, they're lined. (laughs) You put some hot stuff in there and you get a lot of leaching from that plastic into the liquid, like the coffee or whatever you're putting in there. So again, once in a while, it's okay. But if you're going to Starbucks every single day and getting a paper cup, it's not paper. It's plastic. You're drinking plastic. It's crazy. So what are you sending your kids to school with? Their lunches in? Their, are you, you're all stainless steel, glass. What are you packing their stuff in? Yeah, stainless steel, glass, and silicone are the best. Now, I homeschool my kids, so I don't have to worry about any of this. <laughs> <laughs> That's another topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, How I long have they been homeschooled for? The kids have been homeschooled their whole lives. Oh, wow. And I homeschooled since I was 13 years old. My parents started homeschooling our whole family at, at one point when I was a kid. And you're right, it's a whole different can of worms. But I actually hated it. When I started homeschooling, I hated it. My parents did it anyways. And then we... We met this homeschooling group, and 
it had 50 families in our area where I grew up in Minnesota and they were skiing twice a week, like in the winter winters in Minnesota are brutal, right? They were going downhill skiing twice a week in the winter. They had all these other activities that were super fun. It just became like a great thing, but it took me a year or two to kind of warm up to it. And then I realized how amazing it was, but you know, I mean, the key there is you have to have a social group and you have to have a network and, but yeah. <laughs> and your dad, your dad is a doctor too, right? My dad, your dad is a doctor. He's a family yeah. doctor, correct? And my brother's an orthopedic surgeon. Mm-hmm. And look how smart you guys turned out. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's a lot of science, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think some of the other things that surprise people with the estrogen mimicking chemicals is soy, lavender. Those are some of the things in the book that the lavender, I'm like, dang it, I don't want to hear lavender as well. So maybe talk about the soy a little bit, because I think that one uh, people are exposed to at a high level. Yep. Exactly. So soy is complicated. The one thing for sure that every scientist agrees with regarding soy is that it acts like estrogen. There's no debate about that. And most people don't want more estrogen in their bodies, you know, like whether it's from a plant or whether it's from estrogen cream. And if you do want to take a cream, like you're post-menopause and you want to take estrogen cream, generally you want actual estrogen. You don't want some fake version of estrogen that you don't know exactly what's going on with it. So that's the first thing that people need to realize. Everybody agrees soy acts like estrogen. Isoflavones from soy act like estrogen. The second thing is some people argue that it's good for you. Other people argue it's bad for you. And that's a really complicated discussion because there's actually two receptors that pick up estrogen in your body. And testosterone is different. Testosterone is super simple. There's just one receptor. It's called the androgen receptor. So testosterone is floating around your blood. It sticks to this receptor, the androgen receptor, and then it has an activity. Estrogen is more complicated because there's three different estrogens, and then there's two estrogen receptors that pick them up. And the two receptors, one of them is bad and one is good, (laughs) to make it really simple. It's oversimplifying for sure, but one's called alpha and one's called beta. And the estrogen receptor alpha, you don't want to be turning that on. You don't want to be flipping on that light switch when you're an adult. That's mainly for sexual development when you're in the womb. So it's good. It's a good receptor when you're a fetus, but when you're an adult, you should not be turning on that light switch. Like I said, you shouldn't be activating that receptor. Now the beta receptor, the estrogen receptor beta, that's a good one. Even as an adult, you want to be flipping on that light switch because it's protective for breast cancer. It's protective for prostate cancer. It's protective, 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 protects against Alzheimer's. It protects your brain, protects your arteries. So anyways, The beta receptor is the good one. And these fake estrogens we've been talking about, the plastics and the sunscreens and, you know, some of these other chemicals we're probably going to mention, like atrazine and herbicide. And those ones act on the alpha receptor. They act on the bad receptor, the one that increases breast cancer. There's a reason breast cancer is up 250% since 1980. And the reason is not because we didn't pass out enough pink ribbons, right? Because we're exposed to a lot of chemicals and nobody's talking about the chemicals. They're just passing out pink ribbons, which is crazy. But this alpha receptor, you don't want to be activating it. The beta receptor, you do want to activate it. And soy activates both. In some people, it's a little bit more of one or the other. In some cells, it's a little more one or the other. But the point is, soy is risky because you're activating both the good and the bad receptor. Whereas natural estrogen, as an adult, that's just activating the good receptor. I'm a much bigger fan of that. So again, it's, it's obviously a complicated discussion, but that's the really brief <laughs> surface skim of it. So basically your body gets introduced to this artificial estrogen. Your receptor can't distinguish the difference here. It opens up, it accepts this artificial estrogen into your body and it basically disrupts your hormone feedback looplets. So does that sound, does that sound accurate enough? If your body is making estrogen, it's very different than your body receiving artificial estrogen. Correct. Natural occurring estrogen is good. Artificial estrogen is bad. The other aspect of it, these estrogen, these fake estrogens, these artificial estrogens that I write about, they not only mess with your estrogen receptor and block it and bind it and activate it and do all these weird things. They also block the testosterone receptor. In many cases, they block your testosterone which is difficult, right? Because let's say that your blood levels of testosterone for men and women, by the way, it's important for both. Let's say your testosterone looks really good on a blood test, 
but your body's full of all these plastic chemicals and these sunscreen chemicals and all this, those receptors could be blocked. It's like if you're playing hockey, because I'm from Minnesota, right? I used, to, yeah. I used to play hockey. If you put a plywood sheet, a sheet of wood in front of the goal, it doesn't matter how many pucks you have on the ice, how many players you have on the ice, how many shots on goal you have. You're not scoring any goals if you're blocking the goal. And that's what these estrogens do with your hormone receptors. They block the receptor. You're not having an impact from them if your receptors are all plugged up with these plastic chemicals or whatever chemicals. So it's worse than just messing with your estrogen because it also disrupts your testosterone. Will it mess with your free testosterone as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, it, yeah. Can, free total and blocks. Yeah, it does three things. It lowers your free, it lowers your total, and it blocks the receptor. Can it still convert to DHT? No, I don't think so. But I don't know. I'm trying to figure out how, how you start to identify that and... Right. You know, clinical setting. Usually what you see, it's hard because we're talking about nanograms per deciliter and things like that. And, and the medical clinics aren't set up to test for BPA, which is the most common one. And they're definitely not set up to test for phthalates and parabens and oxybenzone and atrazine and all these other chemicals. Um, and the other problem is the scientific community doesn't think they're that important. You know, when scientists do studies on toxicity, they're called toxicologists, and what they're looking for is cell death. If you have some cells growing in a dish, and by the way, that dish is plastic. And by the way, if I took cells out of your skin or your muscles or your fat or whatever and put them in a plastic dish, 80% of those cells die. And that's a well-known fact. Like scientists that do this, I've done this all the time. I've grown, I've grown stem cells in dishes from people all the time. 80% of the cells die. And scientists say, well, that's just normal. That's just what happens. Well, you know, you're putting them in plastic. And what you're doing is you're selecting the cells that can survive the plastic. And then you do research on those cells. So that's the first problem is you're, you're literally researching cells that are resistant to some of these plastic chemicals. And then you put the plastic chemicals on the cells. And it doesn't really kill the cells because guess what? The cells think you're just putting estrogen in there. The cells are like, oh, it's just a really high dose of estrogen. So it's not really toxic. But man, it definitely disrupts what's going on in your body. But scientists will say, oh, it takes kilograms of BPA to hit the toxicity limits. And it's like, well, yeah, but like you're, you're disrupting your hormones at tiny, tiny, tiny fractions of those levels. And so the system is set up to look at what kills you, what's toxic, what's killing cells. And I'm more interested in disrupting the hormones. And you can measure that with testosterone. Generally, if people's testosterone is super low, a lot of that's from these fake estrogens. And at least get those out of your system and see what happens because, you know, you don't want them in your system irrespective whether your testosterone jumps back or whether it stays suppressed. It's just like heavy metals, right? Like sometimes people are exposed to a lot of heavy metals like mercury or cobalt or chromium or cadmium or whatever. And the heavy metals lower your testosterone. And if you just take testosterone cream and you've got a bunch of heavy metals in your body because it's you're a welder or something like that. Well, the testosterone, you've still got heavy metal toxicity. You know, now your testosterone's nice and high, but you still have heavy metal toxicity. So you never really fixed the problem. And then you get brain disorders or whatever. Like the point is, testosterone cream can be great in helping reverse a lot of this stuff. And so can other hormone replacement therapies. But you have to fix the root problem. You don't want to continue drinking out of plastics or rubbing these sunscreens on your body or using these fragranced personal care products that are made from cheap petroleum products. You got to fix that root cause. I've seen people double their testosterone in six weeks just by eliminating these fake chemicals, these estrogen chemicals. In your book, you gave a great analogy of the lab reference range for testosterone. You compared it to running a block versus running a mile. Can you maybe explain, do you remember that analogy that you oh, yeah. used in your book? Oh, for sure. And this is a huge problem with a lot of reference ranges, right? Like even the thyroid hormones, you know, the TSH reference range, thyroid stimulating hormone is 0.5 to 5. <laughs> like you basically have to be dying before they tell you your thyroid is messed up. That's like saying go jogging for one mile or 10 miles or maybe even 10 miles or 100 miles. That's a tenfold range. If you jog 10 miles or 100 miles, that's a completely different experience on your body. These ranges are ridiculous because they're trying to accommodate just average Americans. They're not based on optimizing your health. They're based on a fairly sick population, a very sick population. I mean, go to the 4th of July fireworks and just look around, you know, it brings people out. Crazy. And yeah, or go to Walmart, you know what I mean? Like, look around. We have a sick culture. And the numbers reflect that. I mean, over 40% of Americans are physically obese. It's not just overweight, it's actual obesity. And 
you know, it's not just, oh, you didn't count your calories. Our ancestors didn't count their calories. You know what I mean? It's way beyond that. It's disrupting hormones. It's a lot of problems. The processed food, the carbs, carbs, carbs. It reminds me of a study, and this is a little bit off your question, but it's worth bringing up a study that was done on atrazine, which is the second most used herbicide in North America, atrazine. So there's glyphosate. That's the number one used. Atrazine is the number two used. Hundreds of millions of pounds in America are being used every year. And this chemical is illegal in Europe, by the way. Nothing is allowed. Zero is allowed. With atrazine, they had two groups of rats, these scientists. They give them the exact same calories, exact same everything. Only difference was one of the groups, they put low-dose atrazine in their drinking water. And that group of rats got fat. And the other group of rats was like super lean, just totally normal. And this goes to show you how important it is to have good hormones and hormones optimized and whatnot, because even if you're counting your calories, if your hormones are all messed up, you're much more disposed to obesity. And it can be very frustrating for people. So it's a priority that people should emphasize and they should think of as a priority. But because you're not getting migraines and you're not having some active issue right now, a lot of people push it off. And every product that's being delivered to us is in plastic, styrofoam, you know, all this the chemicals are sprayed on grass. It's just like a constant beating of our system. It's so frustrating. I want to talk about birth control because this is another big one. And I also want to know what your recommendation is to parents that are their children are getting on these synthetic birth controls. So go ahead and talk about that. It's hard. I mean, I don't know about the recommendation to parents. People have to kind of make their own decisions on this, but I can tell you. <laughs> well, this is where my genetic consulting comes in because I have a company where I look at people's genetics and like you mentioned in the introduction here, and I just use 23andMe data, Ancestry data, things like that. I have my own software I've created specifically for this analysis because I'm not happy with anything else out there. And one of the aspects of that, I look at anxiety genes, I look at, you know, diet related genes, sleep, you know, exercise, joint health, all kinds of stuff, hundreds of different categories. And I go through it with people, but to kind of help prioritize it and say like, what's the real take home you can get with your health and your genetics. But estrogen is a category that I look at, right? And some people have very good estrogen genes. They, their body handles a lot of these artificial estrogens very well. And for those people, I just kind of skim right by that topic and I don't go into it much. And honestly, they can get away with a lot of plastic bottles and a lot of this kind of stuff. And 20 years later, they're fine. But there's plenty of people with very bad genes in the estrogen section on my DNA report. And on my genetic consults, that's where I focus, right? If you've got a bunch of bad genes, sure enough, and this is my experience, you talk to people and they say, oh yeah, I took birth control for five years and it was the worst. I gained a ton of weight. I got depression on and on. You'll see all these health problems. Those are the people that especially need to pay attention to this. But if you don't know your genetics, I say err on the safe side, you know, like be careful with these fake estrogen chemicals. Birth control is not a natural estrogen hormone. It's a fake version of the hormone. I don't think people realize that. I really, I do not think people know that. It used to be from horses, you know, they would isolate it from the horse urine, but now they make it synthetically with petroleum and with yams and all this kind of stuff, but they can manipulate these molecules in all types of different ways. So natural estrogen is called estradiol. Birth control 17-alpha-ethenylestradiol. It's a different molecule. It's kind of like steroids. You know, like bodybuilders use these steroids. It's not natural testosterone that they're using. They're using a synthetic version that's designed to stay in the body longer. It's designed so your body can't break it down so it stays in your body. And that's exactly what they do with the birth control is they, they manipulate it so your body can't get rid of it. And, of course, that it's just not, not a natural thing. It's not something your ancestors were exposed to. You know, of course, there's been scientific studies on it. And sure enough, it does increase risk of breast cancer and whatnot. It's pretty minor risk, but there are health risks. And again, everybody's different. The genetic component is a big component of that to understand whether it's a huge priority or just a sort of a priority. <laughs> Let's talk about what those fake estrogens then once you urinate them out into our water supply. Yeah, exactly. What that does. Well, exactly. I mean, one of the reasons I wrote my book is because when I went to college in Florida, they had somebody from the city come in and give a talk for orientation. And this person from this, the municipal water supply place said, don't drink the water out of your faucet. Like, don't just turn on the faucet, put it in a, in a cup and drink it. And they said it's because there's too much birth control in the water in this area. 
because they're at sea level and they're just recycling the water over and over. And people are urinating birth control into the water system. And then nobody's filtering that out. That's true of all big cities. You know, if you live in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota, you don't find birth control in your water supply, but you do find a lot of herbicides and atrazine and chemicals like that. But I'm a fan in general just to filter your drinking water, but it's in the water supply and it's a very problematic, like the levels, because they concentrate it. They don't filter it out. They're good at killing viruses. They're good at killing bacteria with your municipal water supply, but they're not good at filtering out hormones and hormone disrupting chemicals. So you heard this, how old were you? And you instantly panicked and yeah, I went was on like, to study I don't it. Know, 18 or 19, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, ah! Oh yeah. Yeah. I thought it was shocking. And well, the other thing that it did for me as I as I went through the scientific program and whatnot, it made me aware of these chemicals and the potential that they're in our environment because I wasn't even on my radar until that point. And then I realized, oh, it's not just birth control. It's these plastics and it's not just plastics. It's these herbicides and it's not, you know what I mean? It just kind of blew up into a lot of other things. And I'm assuming this is going to be a yes. You probably believe that this is why we're seeing such an early onset of puberty. Oh, for sure. hundred percent. You can trigger early puberty in animals if you just give them these chemicals. And what doctors are doing in America right now is they're not saying that's a bad thing, that girls especially are going into puberty at such a young age. What they're trying to do is normalize it. They're trying to say, well, everybody's doing it now, so let's just make the normal range lower. So they're trying to make nine years old the normal for puberty age. They're trying to expand the range, just like they've done with testosterone. Because so many people were coming in below 500 on their testosterone, they just lowered the normal range to 300 on men's testosterone. And women's too. I mean, women's testosterone ranges are ridiculous. It's a joke. I mean, they sometimes on blood tests you'll see zero to one hundred for women's testosterone, like <laughs> as if as if it's okay to be zero. Like that's totally normal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's freaking unbelievable how okay America's become with being just mediocre and mediocre at best. I mean, we're continuing to lower our standards. The healthcare system's lowering their standards to meet these crap products, to meet the environmental factors, to to meet the majority of America running around obesity. Pharmaceutical companies are, you know, loving it. They're to save today with some medication, like your body sh- has some shortage of their medication that's going to that's going to save you rather than addressing the underlying cause. I mean, it's it's the whole thing is severely messed up. I want to talk about the epigenetic part that you mentioned. So what you're saying is that there's certain people that when exposed to these products, they can make a mark on their genes that can be passed down to their children? Correct. Yes. The definition of epigenetics is marks on your DNA, physical marks. The analogy I like is musical notes. So if you have a song and it's got a melody, like Mary Had a Little Lamb, that's your DNA. It's very easy to pass on. It's very simple. The melody stays the same when you pass it on. But epigenetics is like, you still have the melody, you still have the DNA there, but now you've added chords. You've added notes on on top of the melody. That's epigenetics. And that can change. And you don't change the DNA, but you can change those chords. You can change those other notes and make the song more complicated. And that's what we do. We do that every day. I mean, what your choices with your exercise and your sunshine exposure and your eating habits and your hormone levels, especially the hormones, they all alter your epigenetics. So you can pass on a more positive epigenetic song to your kids, or you can pass on a negative epigenetic song to your kids, meaning you can make them better or worse. So we have a lot of control over that and it gets passed on. It's so interesting. So whenever you see an obese family, for example, and you see their young children, I mean, I'm just talking a couple of years old that are obese. You're saying it's possible that they, they passed on that, those epigenetics to them. Oh yeah. makes it a lot harder. You're basically setting up the kid behind the eight ball. And that's what you see with animals too. I mean, you see a lot less fertility. You can see fertility just decline and decline and decline. You can mess up four generations with one chemical exposure. That's crazy. There's a scientist named Michael Skinner out in Washington. That's his expertise. He he raises 5,000 rats like just day to day. I mean, just the overhead that he pays to, to do his studies because he's he's studying four generations out. Because three generations, you can argue that like if I have a mother rat a pregnant rat, and I expose her to BPA, you can argue that the mother's exposed, the fetus is exposed, and then the fetus stem cells for the eggs or sperm are all exposed. So you can literally argue that you're exposing three generations in one exposure. But if you studied the fourth generation and you see health impacts four generations out, 
that's a bigger problem. That means it's epigenetic. And that's what you see. That's actually what you see. And that's, again, that's why I called my book Estrogeneration. Not just because this generation is saturated in these chemicals. It's because four generations out, we can still have impacts. At least four. I feel so bad for those kids when you see them. You're like, they should not be that soft and heavy that young in life. I mean, that is a struggle the rest of their life. Right. It's expensive. Horrible for them. Yeah, it's expensive because the, you know, insulin is like, it was now with Joe Biden, it's like a thousand bucks a month. You know what I mean? It used to be like 400, just the cost, you know, of some of these drugs and things that they're putting the kids on. That's a factor, how low energy you have, like your quality of life goes way down, but they don't think of it that way because they don't know anything else. They don't know what it's like to have amazing energy and to, you know, and to have a lot of sex drive and a lot of vibrancy. And that's sad. So you did some work on cholesterol with cholesterol. And I'm curious your thoughts on statins and cholesterol levels and and how it's handled today in a clinical setting. So talk about cholesterol and its importance. Oh yeah. Cholesterol is super important. What you see is people with super low cholesterol that are taking statins the doctors are love. They love them. They're like, "Oh, you're so healthy. I'm so proud of you." And then those same people, they have depression. They have no sex drive. They have no energy, and they complain about it. And the doctor says, "Well, your blood test looks great." I look at their blood test and say, "Oh my gosh, your cholesterol is a disaster. It's super low. You don't want low cholesterol. Cholesterol is the building block for estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. It's a building block for your sex hormones. That's the first thing. The second thing is the idea that your cholesterol is too high is." basically just marketing you know most people don't have high cholesterol but they're told that they have high cholesterol now there are there are a few people out there with legitimately high cholesterol where it is legitimately too high that's very rare but that does happen that is a problem the first thing with the topic of cholesterol that people need to understand is cholesterol doesn't damage your arteries what damages people's arteries if you have plaque in your arteries is inflammation So let's say you're smoking, all those inflammatory chemicals are coming in your body. Those inflammatory chemicals, they cut up your arteries, they shred up your arteries, they they cause damage to your arteries. Cholesterol comes in and fixes that. So yes, you have cholesterol physically in your arteries if you have plaque in your arteries, but it's not because of the cholesterol, it's because of the damage. So that's the first thing. It doesn't matter whether the damage is coming from junk food, whether it's coming from stress and lack of sleep, whether it's coming from smoking cigarettes, it's not cholesterol. But if your cholesterol is super outrageously high, like your total cholesterol is 600, the cholesterol stays in your body a very long time because it's just your body can't get rid of it quick enough. And if it's outrageously high like that, the cholesterol reacts with oxygen. You have oxygen in your blood cells. You have red blood cells carrying oxygen. And it starts to become oxidized cholesterol. And that oxidized cholesterol damages your arteries. That becomes an inflammatory chemical. And yes, so cholesterol can damage your arteries when it's ridiculously high, but most people don't have legitimately high cholesterol, but they're told they do. I think if your total is below 300, I'm as happy as could be. I could not care less about all the nuance with your cholesterol and the LDL versus HDL. If the total is below 300, I'm happy. I base that on actual scientific studies, not something the pharmaceutical companies told me to say to people. Yeah, and you don't have anything to financially gain by educating people on statins. And I read something like 200 million people are on a statin. 200 million people. That's $19 billion in revenue for pharmaceutical companies. Do those 200 million people fully understand cholesterol? Do they understand that it sits at the top of the hormone cascade and the importance that it plays in the production of estradiol, testosterone, DHEA, cortisol? I'm betting they don't. You also did work with the U.S. Department of Veterans in the context of Alzheimer's research. And I'm curious what you learned from that experience. Oh, yeah, lots. Well, there's so many things. I mean, (laughs) what didn't I learn about Alzheimer's? I mean, I immersed myself in the field of Alzheimer's for a bunch of years. I was actually making viruses. I was designing viruses, which is ironic now after the COVID. Ah. Because this was like 12 years ago. It wasn't because I was trying to get people sick. We were just making, I was using DNA. I was creating DNA code to make a virus. And then I would put that DNA into 
into cells growing in a dish. And then those cells would make a virus for me. And then I would spin it down with a giant centrifuge and isolate the virus. And then we would inject them into mice and things and try and cure Alzheimer's. So we had mice with Alzheimer's and I was actually making, I called it a neutered virus. You'd neuter it. You make it so it's not, it can't pass on any sickness to anybody else. You take out all the bad genes and you just put in good genes and you try and use it to cure something. So it's not like a gain of function where I'm trying to make it worse and trying to study the worst of the worst possible scenarios like they do in these bio labs, these crazy BL biosafety level four labs like Wuhan. Um, I wasn't doing any of that nonsense and, and I never would, but I was making virus, which again, <laughs> sounds really bad now, but I was also studying a lot of other aspects of Alzheimer's and, you know, I think blood sugar is definitely a big player with Alzheimer's hormones are a huge player. Like I mentioned before, testosterone protects against Alzheimer's. You can have, make a lot of mistakes, but if your hormone levels are good, you're going to be protected with your bone density when you're older, your arteries, and your brain function. Hormones are super important for all of that. Interesting. I mean, we're seeing an epidemic of that, right? And what about inflammation? Inflammation is a massive problem. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the root cause of all these chronic issues ultimately. And that's the beauty of hormones too. When I study hormones and talk about hormones, it's always with the recognition that good levels of hormones protect against inflammation. One of the inflammatory chemicals that your body makes is called interleukin. There's 24 interleukins. There's IL-1, there's IL-2, there's IL-3, all the way up to 24. They just call it IL as an abbreviation, but it's interleukin. There's interleukin-1, interleukin-2, interleukin-3. And the reason I bring this up is because you have interleukins in your low back, in your discs. You have interleukins in your joints, in your knees. You have interleukins in your gut. You have interleukins in your brain. And if they get out of hand, they cause brain inflammation. And ultimately, it's a risk of Alzheimer's. And if they get out of hand in your joints, they cause arthritis. If they're at good normal levels, it's okay. But if they get out of hand, if they get a little too high, you get all kinds of chronic health problems. And testosterone specifically shuts off interleukins. Testosterone is very anti-inflammatory. And so are the other sex hormones, to be honest, even estrogen. And again, I'm not demonizing estrogen. The natural estrogen is great. It's very anti-inflammatory. The problem is these fake estrogens screw that up, right? So, so you don't get the benefits of the natural estrogen. You don't get the benefits of the natural testosterone when you mess that up. So it's, it's very anti-inflammatory from that aspect, the sex hormone. And with COVID being an inflammatory disease, I think we're going to see major uptick in Alzheimer's, dementia. Not that we... I mean. It's already a massive problem, but it seems like it's going to be a problem that continues to grow, unfortunately. It's yeah, yeah, really unfortunate. Point. Especially with all the micro blood clotting and the plumbing problems related to COVID, if you're, yeah, if you have those. Yeah. Right. So you do your DNA consulting and you've done some DNA consulting for special ops. I'm curious to hear about that. Oh, yeah. I had a consult yesterday with a guy from the special forces. So I give talks at some of their summits and things, and they don't let me advertise these on social media and whatnot, but basically they recognize the importance of optimizing health, not just waiting until you're sick, waiting until you have plaque in your arteries, waiting until you have Alzheimer's and trying to fix it. Then they recognize the importance of optimization, especially customizing your optimization, not just, not just saying like, Oh, fish oil is good. Therefore everybody should take fish oil or something like that. Well, maybe you don't need fish oil. Maybe you've got great omega-3 genes or whatever the thing is, right? So everybody's so different. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't remember how it started. I think I, just a few special forces operators or leaders in the special forces, initially they did a DNA consult with me and they liked it so much. They were so impressed that they basically created a system for me to do it for you know a substantial number of their operators and then it just kind of went from there but it's the same consult that i do day to day with just anybody you know what i mean it's not like some exceptional it, there's nothing different like i do i do consults for pro athletes too and it's nothing different than i would do for anybody else it's just looking at people's genetics and saying oh this is a weak spot this is a strong spot here's the real priorities for your health here's the things you should check on your blood test in the future sometimes it's different the guy yesterday just specifically, obviously, I'm not going to give any names or anything, but he had a couple of risk genes for high bilirubin. And that's kind of unusual. It's very rare to have a couple of risk genes there. And I told him, this one jumps out at me. You were probably born with jaundice. And obviously, you wouldn't remember. And he goes, oh, it's funny you say that because my mom told me I was born with jaundice. Like that's that to put him under a UV lamp when he was born. And it just validates the predictability of these genetic markers. 
and how impactful they are for your health. Even as an adult, if you have high bilirubin, you're going to get gallstones and kidney stones and you're going to have health problems if it's, if it's chronically high. The solution for that, by the way, is just get out in the sun. You know, it's not like you don't have to take drugs. You just go out in the sunshine with your shirt off for 10 minutes, once or twice a week. But if he's not doing that, it will lead to health problems. So it is a major priority. And for you and I, it's probably not a priority. That's a pretty rare gene. So there's usually solutions that are very basic. But if you don't know what the problems are, you're oftentimes just guessing or just you're just shooting with a blindfold on. So somebody can use the 23andMe or give you the 23andMe information, what you look at the raw data, I'm assuming yep, there's the, correct. you can get all the, and then you put it into your software and do the consultation. Exactly. And there's 23andMe, they have 700,000 SNPs. It's not like a trivial amount of information that you're, you're kind of weeding through. And Ancestry, they have 900,000 SNPs. And not like Ancestry does more ancestry related SNPs. So they're kind of approximately equal. 23andMe and Ancestry are very similar when you run the reports. They're both very good, but it's a surprising amount of info. You know, people don't give them credit for how much information that you can get from those. Yeah. And then so they can book if so, if there's somebody listening that wants to do this, they can go to your website and reach out and book a consultation. Is that how the process works? Yep, exactly. It's ajconsultingcompany.com. It's not the most memorable name, AJ Consulting Company. I've had all of that. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's what you do. You're not a marketing guy. You're, you're a smart guy. <laughs> not, not a marketing guy. Correct. <laughs> I've listened to one of your podcasts about sleep and the aura ring, which you can see right now that I'm wearing. And you mentioned in that podcast that special ops teams or the government did some studies on sleep devices and they found that the aura was the top sleep tracker. Does that still hold true in your mind? Yeah, no, unfortunately, they started charging per month. Back when I bought my order ring, it was just like a flat fee, you just have the thing. And so it's it's kind of unfortunate. But with inflation and all this, I mean, it, it's just the way it's gone. But but I still love it. I, you know, I, I think it's the best sleep tracking device out there. I personally use it. My wife has one. And sometimes if you're married or something, you can get one that fits you and your wife and you can kind of do it for a month and then give her the ring for a month and fit it on the the middle finger or the pinky or whatever if you want to really maximize the use of the thing. But it's really important. I mean, the key with the sleep is you got to get at least one hour of deep and one hour of REM. You really have to. I think if you're not getting at least an hour of those, you start dipping into Alzheimer's territory and all kinds of chronic health issues. And me personally, I have very bad sleep genes. I really struggled with this. I had a whole semester in college where I uh, I slept for three hours a night. I would go to bed at three in the morning and wake up at six a.m. every day. And that's my issue. You know, like that's that's my battle. That's my struggle. So for me, it's a super priority. Some people, it's not because they just naturally sleep amazing, but they need to focus on their blood sugar because they have twenty diabetes genes and their blood sugar is a disaster or whatever. Everybody's a little different, but. If you have sleep issues, I recommend the Aura. Yeah, and they they're doing a good job, like continuing to add things. They just added the, the oxygen levels and their you know the temperature they have. I mean, it's a lot of a lot of information. Like you know, whenever I got COVID, I knew that my body temperature was rising before I ever felt anything. So yeah, HRV went up. Yeah, or it went down. I should say yeah. Yeah, for sure. So you also did some studies on infrared. So I'm kind of curious of some of your best biohacking tips that you have. Well, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, 40% of sunshine is infrared light. So when you go out in the sun, you're getting an infrared treatment. So once again, I recommend sunshine. Don't get burned. You know, look at me, right? I'm the classic example of somebody who can get burned. And I still go out in the sun. I set a timer. And as soon as the timer goes off, I, I go the other direction. I get the hat on and the sun shirt and the sun gloves. Even if I'm out fishing and stuff, I wear sun pants. I wear everything. But for that first 20 minutes, I've literally got my shirt off and I'm trying to get as much sun as I can. So that's the first thing. Sunshine is good for you. It's got infrared light. It's got a lot of other benefits for your mood, for detoxing, for breaking down heavy metals under your skin and all kinds of interesting things. And of course, vitamin D, but that's everybody knows that. The other thing with infrared that was really interesting, I mean, there's a lot, right? It increases your stem cells, for example. So some people, they genetically tend to decline. Their stem cell numbers tend to decline with age a little more rapidly than other people. So I'll tell them like to do infrared treatment specifically for their stem cells. That's what I was studying at Mayo Clinic. There's also good evidence relating to Alzheimer's. There's a really funny study. I call it the tinfoil hat study. 
they had mice that get Alzheimer's. So if you, if you just leave the mice alone, 100% of the time they get Alzheimer's. So they're called Alzheimer's mice. But they had this study where they gave those mice infrared light and they put a tinfoil hat on them. They literally made aluminum foil hats for mice. And then they gave them infrared treatment every day for like 10 minutes. And there was like a lot less mice. It was like 50% less or something. I can't remember the exact numbers. It's been a while. But it was like substantially less mice got Alzheimer's. Even though the infrared wasn't hitting their brains, it was just hitting below their neck. And their brain was benefiting so much, it was protecting those mice against Alzheimer's, like massively. And of course, if you took off the tinfoil hat and actually got infrared on their brain and on their whole body, it was even further less Alzheimer's. It was like 30% of them had Alzheimer's instead of 50%. But infrared, it's good for your body. It's good for your brain. It goes three inches through your skull on human cadaver studies. It's really beneficial. I was talking to somebody a couple days ago with a gene called macrophage stimulator, MST1. And that gene, it's a gut gene. It's in your gut. And it basically means your macrophages are too aggressive. It's like an immune system cell, like a little Pac-Man cell. It literally looks like Pac-Man under a microscope that eats viruses and bacteria. It chews on stuff. And if those cells are too aggressive, if you have a genetic disposition to having hyper-aggressive macrophages, they're little Pac-Man that are just eating your own body, infrared shuts those down. It calms them down. It it helps your gut. So there's a lot of different versions of, you know, like the benefits of infrared. It's it's really interesting. Is that an infrared light that I see behind you? Oh, yeah. I have a couple of them. Mm -hmm. I have an infrared (laughs) and a vitamin D lamp. Yep. Are there brands that you recommend and that you have on your website that people can find? Oh, yeah. You list them out there? Exactly, okay. on the AG Consulting Company website, yeah. What do you think the future of stem cells are? True stem cells, not PRP. I mean, actual stem cells. Where are we headed with that? It's hard to predict because there's so much influence with money and politics on and pharma companies. Because from just a purely financial perspective, the pharma companies want you to be sick. I'm not saying the individual people in those companies want you to be sick, but I'm saying just from the money end of it, the more sickness, the more money they make, right? So it's always a battle between the money and actually optimizing people's health in our country, especially in America, because we we allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise on TV, which is absurdly unethical. And they have a ton of influence on the politicians in this country. In Europe, for example... And people know this already, so I don't even need to give examples. But in Europe, a friend of mine, Michael Skinner, right, the same scientist I mentioned before with the 5,000 mice, he gave a talk regarding a particular chemical that we use on our food supply in America. And he showed how it impacts four generations out. It impacts health for four generations. He talked about epigenetics of this chemical. They made that chemical illegal two weeks later in Europe after this talk and In America, that was like five years ago. That chemical is still legal in America. We still use it in our food supply. That's because these big giant corporations that make a killing off these chemicals, they make a lot of money on these chemicals. They have a lot of influence on these politicians behind the scenes. And that's part of the problem. So it's not necessarily just about the research and just about the health benefits. People saw this with COVID, hopefully, if they were paying attention. You know, it's not always just about the research and just about the reality. Oftentimes, it's about the money and and the politics and trying to control people and to, and to push a narrative. And, and that stuff makes it hard to predict the future. But what I will say is there's a lot of potential aspects to stem cells that are super beneficial. And it gets swept under the rug a little bit, the stem cell thing, because if I take stem cells from an average American, from their fat, those stem cells are super unhealthy because their fat is super unhealthy. I call them McDonald's stem cells. I literally, that's the name I make, I use for this. Because if they're eating McDonald's all the time, those stem cells are a disaster. And if you take those out and you inject them into somebody else or inject them back into that person, it doesn't really help them because their stem cells are sick. What about the amniotic fluid? Do you have any the person, experience yeah. with that? Oh, yeah. But even there, it does depend a lot. I remember, like four generations out, you can impact your epigenetics. And if you're exposed to a bunch of plastic chemicals and all this, the BPA goes into your amniotic you know, fluids and And it's not just BPA. It's like I say, it's epigenetic marks. It's not physical chemicals. Sometimes, sometimes it's actually the epigenetics in it. So there's a huge amount of variability. And that's the problem with the research right now is you'll read one study on stem cells and say, oh, they're the best thing ever. And you'll read another study on stem cells and say, oh, they're, they're completely useless. Why do they find these disparate results? Well, 
because the stem cells are super variable based on people's health. And the problem is our medical system, they don't know how to define healthy. They think if your testosterone is between 250 and 1,000, you're healthy. That's absurd. They think if your blood sugar is between 50 and 150, like you're healthy or whatever, maybe 50 and 100 or something. And even that's absurd because if your blood sugar is chronically above 85, it's a, it's a doubles your risk of heart disease. 85. And if you go to the doctor with a blood sugar of 100, they'll tell you that you're fine, that you're normal. They're not optimizing people's health and they don't know how to think that way. So they just lump all these people together in these scientific studies and it just totally screws with the data. I'm curious, does your dad still practice? Some, a little bit. He's mostly retired. Okay. Did he, does he have your same perspective on? Some of it. Health optimization? Some of it. <laughs> or do you have yeah. interesting uh, Thanksgiving dinners? <laughs> he got really interested in the COVID thing because he was frustrated. He's trying to help people, kind of like Peter, Dr. Peter McCullough. My dad was more like that, where he was so frustrated with the system because he was saying, like, they're not helping people. What's going on? Like, why are, why are they intentionally not allowing doctors to help people? And he started going around the country and giving talks. He's given talks in Texas and Oklahoma and Kansas and Nebraska on COVID. And he wouldn't let anybody record them. It's not on YouTube or anything because he doesn't, you know, the problem with the medical system, one of the many problems, they have the doctors buy the balls because they'll take away your medical license. So these doctors, they're making like 700 grand a year. And then all of a sudden that goes down to zero. If you mention something bad about a vaccine, that's how scary it is for these guys. So of course, you know, they have a lot of leverage on these doctors. And that's why people are always surprised. Like, well, why don't they say something? Why do doctors keep prescribing statins? Well, if you don't prescribe the damn statins, you get sued or they take away your medical license. It's literally that bad. It's, it's that corrupt. So it's different for somebody like me who's independent. And that's one of the reasons I'm so adamant about being independent. I mean, I'm a homeschooler, right? So it's like in my nature at this point, but that's why I quit Mayo Clinic, you know, like I felt like they were being real unethical in the way they handled this whole COVID situation. And I'm just not going to be a part of that. And I made a video on YouTube. If people want to see my reasons here, I did a video on YouTube on specifically. Okay. So what's the title of it? Do you remember? Why I quit so Mayo Clinic. <laughs> oh, okay. Just that direct. Okay. I like it. I'm definitely going to go watch that for sure. I appreciate your time and your wealth of knowledge. I think I need to do my DNA with you and then, you know, talk about that because I I would be intrigued to hear what you have to say. So you already mentioned your website is AJ Consulting. That's where they can find out more information about your services and and the products that that you recommend. And then your Instagram, is it Anthony GJ? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Okay. And then I also, I link all this information in the show notes so the listeners can find it. And I'll also link any studies documentation, that YouTube video that you just mentioned. I'll put that all in the show notes. 